Good morning. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Very good to be with you. We came in uh, yesterday evening. I've been inhaling this beautiful mountain air you have around here. And uh, even though we uh, got up a little late, I still went out and had a short walk, just enjoying this air. Now, you saw Japheth helping me up. Hard to believe I used to run marathons and uh, climb Kilimanjaro. Um, but, you know, the Lord has kept us going. And uh, although the body's not what it once was, I think the mind is still ticking over. <laughs> We've come to strange times, haven't we? No matter where you look, you know, uh, in society, it's a strange time. In the church, our church, my church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, it's a strange time. Troubling time in many ways. But I want to tell you, dear friends, God is still God. He is still the same. And he sent his son, Jesus, to show us what he is like to take our place on the cross and to give us the promise that he will come back and one day this mess will all be over. So today, at this hour, it's all about Jesus. Really, what else is there to speak about Jesus? It's not about the church. The church is important. I love the church. But it's really about Jesus and not the church. Not about the preacher. Certainly not this preacher. It's about Jesus. Not about doctrine. And doctrine is important. I was a teacher for many years, taught at the seminary and other places. But it's not about doctrine, it's about Jesus. Jesus is terrific. Jesus is dynamic. Jesus is, can you bear this, radical. There are two Jesus of Nazareth, maybe more, but at least two. One is what you might call the virtual Jesus. This is the church Jesus, the Jesus of the stained glass windows, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who doesn't rock the boat. This Jesus makes you feel comfortable. With this Jesus, you can go to church and still have hate in your heart when you leave. You can hate someone whose skin is a different color, someone who's gay or lesbian. You can hate someone who comes from a different country. You can sing songs to this Jesus because he makes you feel good. He tells you what you want to hear. The problem, it's not the Jesus of the Gospels. That's a virtual Jesus, a Jesus of our own creation. They would never have crucified the virtual Jesus because 
He's just too ordinary. He's gray. He's bland. The real Jesus gets angry. He gets angry when religious leaders rip off poor people. This Jesus has eyes that blaze and hands that whip the animals in the temple courts to drive them out. This Jesus overturns the tables of the money changers, sending the coins flying. This Jesus overturns the status quo. This Jesus will upend your life. This Jesus upended my life. He's a threat in his day, a twofold threat. A threat to the Romans because he claims to be Messiah, a king, and they want only one king, Caesar in Rome. So he's a threat to the Romans, and he's a threat to the religious establishment. They hate him. They hate him. It's no wonder that they crucified him. The only wonder, my friends, is that they didn't crucify him sooner. Today, I want us to look at three stories about the real Jesus. There are many, many others we could, could turn to in the Gospels, but these are three that especially impress me. Interestingly enough, they all involve women, and they all come from the Gospel of Luke. And we heard them read. The first one comes from Luke 13, 10 to 17. I call it Sabbath games. Sabbath games. We won't read it again, but this story has four players, people who've come to worship in synagogue Sabbath morning. Then there is the ruler of the synagogue. He's the guy in charge. He's the Sabbath police. He's determined to make everybody keep the Sabbath to the letter. Then there's the woman. She has curvature of the spine. Ever seen anyone with curvature of the spine? We don't see many these days. But especially overseas, and we lived 15 years in India, not so uncommon. Bend over at right angles. Eyes can only look to the ground. She never can look up and see the sunlight. Never look up and see the stars. She's been like that for 18 years. And then there's Jesus. It's Sabbath, and he shows up to worship also. The service is moving along, but Jesus messes everything up. Come here, he says to the woman. Then he puts his hands on her and says, you are set free. And immediately, she does something she's been unable to do for 18 years. She stands up straight and bursts out in praise to God. And everybody is happy, right? Well, not quite. The chief of the Sabbath police is mad. He's mad with Jesus because Jesus has just done work on the Sabbath. He's broken the Sabbath. He's mad with the woman. If she hadn't come to church, everything would have kept going smoothly. 
So he says to the people, if you want to get healing, come on some other day. Don't come on the Sabbath because there shouldn't be any work done on the Sabbath. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? What baloney. This is Sabbath baloney. And Jesus calls him out. You hypocrite, he says. And that word hypocrite, hypocrite, is the same word for actor. You actor. You're playing games. You're playing God games. Didn't you lose your ox this morning to feed it? Didn't you lose your donkey and lead it to water? Of course they did. And shouldn't I lose this woman from her bonds also? Do you place more value on a donkey than you do on a person? And then he says something wonderful. The woman, he says, you are a daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Abraham. My friends, this is the only place in the entire Bible where you find this expression. And you will not find it in all the Jewish writings, a daughter of Abraham. What do you find? Sons of Abraham. Sons, yes. Daughter, never. Remember the song from the campfires? Father Abraham had many sons. Sons, sons, sons. Where were the daughters? Didn't he have any daughters? For Jesus, Father Abraham has many sons and just as many daughters. Every woman has the same status as a man. This is Jesus. Isn't he terrific? Luke tells us that everyone went home from church rejoicing. Everyone except the religious police, the Sabbath police, whose baloney had been put to shame by Jesus. I love this story. Do you see yourself in this story? I see myself. I have been each of these characters, each of them, that is, except for Jesus. I am the woman bent over, trapped in a vice, eyes fixed on the ground. But one day Jesus calls me forward and says, go free, straighten up, see the light, look at the see the sun, see the stars. I am one of the worshipers, Sabbath worshipers. I see the woman, I've seen her many times, I look away. I've come to worship. She's none of my business. I am the synagogue ruler, the Sabbath police. My job is to ensure that everyone in my charge doesn't transgress the Sabbath. Yes, I am. I'm not making this up. My first job in church work was dean of boys at a boarding school in the mountains of India. And uh, met Mark Johnson last night. He was a student at that school a few years after I was there. Incredible school, Vincent Hill School. Six, 7,000 feet up, 
first ridge of the Himalayas. Look north, the eternal snows of Tibet. We could only get into that school in those days when we first went there by walking. Only way, unless you rode a donkey in. There were no cars. There was no, no road in. We were isolated at that school, which meant that the faculty spent a lot of time looking at themselves and looking at the students. <laughs> in those days, boys were wearing peg pants. <laughs> which were close-fitting pants, okay? And the faculty, after much tut-tutting, decreed that the boys' Sabbath pants should have minimum of 16-inch cuffs. Oh, the wisdom of the faculty in academy. You guessed it, I'm dean of boys. What's my job? I've got to go around room by room measuring the boys' cuffs. And unless they're 16 inches or more, they're banned. Okay, got to be altered. Now, the joke is this. We had in that dorm boys 8 to 18. The big guys, 6 feet 2 inches and taller, are little chaps, at least a foot shorter. But the same rule for everyone, 16-inch cuffs. The boys called them... Umbrella pants. <laughs> what baloney is this? What a perversion of the Sabbath in the synagogue that day. What's baloney? It's pretentious nonsense. Pretentious because it's all done for show. And it's nonsense because God is not impressed. I've been in church work for more than 50 years. I can tell you, I've seen a lot of Adventist baloney. A lot of it. But listen, it's not just Adventist. All religions suffer from religious baloney. Being concerned about looking right, saying the right things, ultra careful about what other people think of you what they'll say about you. Now, said Jesus, the Sabbath was made for us. It's for us. We've turned it 180 degrees. The longest Sabbath of my life, I think it was the longest, was at a Pathfinder camp out in Tennessee. We were studying at Vanderbilt, Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, we had, our kids were Pathfinder age, and so they invited us to go on to their camp, camp out and speak to them on Sabbath. Tennessee in the summer is hot and humid. We were camped by the edge of a lake. It was so cool, so inviting. Now you get the picture, don't you? It's Sabbath, so we can only sit and wait and sweat and wait for the sun to go down. <laughs> Ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. I think it was the longest Sabbath of my life. <laughs> Jesus cuts through all that baloney. He shows us what true religion is really like. 
Jesus doesn't play Sabbath games. Okay. We do. The Sabbath is a beautiful gift from a loving God. It is made for us. All right, the second story from Luke 18, uh, Luke 8, 1 to 3. I call this one the Forgotten Women of Galilee. I read through the Bible every year, Old Testament once in English, New Testament in Greek twice. I used to teach New Testament, and so I still have the ability to read it in the original. I must have read, dear friends, must have read this passage a hundred times or more until one day it hit me. It hit me. What hit me? Well, did you notice it? Here we have a picture of Jesus in his ministry in Galilee. He travels from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 are with him, and we've seen Harry Anderson portrayals of that and others, you know. Jesus and the 12. It's an all-male show, right? Not according to Luke. Not according to Luke. The 12 are with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And he names three of them, Mary, Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, from whom he cast out seven demons, Joanna, wife of Cusa, manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and says Luke, many others. How many are many? I don't know. But it's more than one or two. What are these women doing? They are traveling around village to village, town to town, with Jesus as he's preaching the good news. Did you ever notice this passage? I'm not making it up. Okay. It raises many questions. Well, first of all, the questions of propriety. Oh, I, I'm quite sure there was nothing questionable in this. They would have stayed. There weren't motels. They would have stayed in homes of people as they went around. But the, the real questions, you know, these women are all wealthy women. That's an interesting thing. Where did they get their wealth? Um, they are important women in society, which may give you a different take on Mary Magdalene, who is usually thought of as being a woman with a scarlet letter. You know where that idea came from? It came from Rome, <laughs> from a pope about 500 years after the Gospels were written. He's the first one to suggest that Mary Magdalene was a harlot. Okay. The Bible never says that she was. Rather, here in Luke, it's clear that she was a wealthy woman because these were wealthy women who bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. Interesting. Interesting. Some of them were married. One is married to Cusa. Good night. He is the manager of king. That's Herod Antipas, king in Galilee. Manager of his household. He's a big shot. 
and his wife is not there in the palace. She's traveling around Galilee with Jesus. Are you getting a different picture of this, of what was going on? I was absolutely startled and blown away because of what it told me about Jesus. Jesus had women disciples. They traveled with him on the preaching tours. They're wealthy. Wait a minute. Was this practice common among the Jews? Seems edgy. What did their husbands think of them going off? How did the women become wealthy? Now, Mary was certainly Jewish. The others were probably Roman women. In Roman society at that time, women had a higher status than Jewish women had. In Jewish society, women were definitely second class. They uh, did not go out except with their husbands. They went out, they were veiled. They could not own property. They could not have been wealthy. Mary, Magdala, how she was wealthy, I don't know. Now, my friends, there were other rabbis who traveled around teaching. It was not unusual that Jesus went around teaching accompanied by his disciples. There were others. Eventually, you know, this is the way the disciples became rabbis. They learned from their master rabbi, and eventually some would become rabbis themselves. Here's the difference. All the other wandering teachers had only male disciples, okay? They never had women, never. Indeed, in Jewish society at the time, Women had second-class status, and they were considered by the rabbis as sort of dangerous. The daily prayer of the Jews was, Praised be God that he has not created me a Gentile. Praised be to God he has not created me a woman. Praised be to God. He has not created me an ignorant man. How would you like that prayer? Thank you, God, that I'm not a woman. Among the Pharisees, who were the most pious sect, was a group known as the Black and Blue Pharisees. Who were these? They wouldn't even look at a woman. If they're going down the street and a woman is about to cross their path, they close their eyes tightly and walk straight ahead, which sometimes meant walk straight into a wall or into an ox cart. So they're black and blue. They're black and blue. And Jesus of Nazareth has women disciples. Is this man radical or what? He is radical. Okay. In recent years... Adventists have spent a lot of time debating whether women pastors might be ordained. Often it's said, well, Jesus didn't ordain any women. That's true. He didn't. But people forget he didn't ordain any men either. 
He simply selected some people, people, men and women to be with him, to learn from him, to preach his message. And after he rose again from the dead, the first people he he told to go and tell the good news were women. We won't turn to it, but these same women from Luke 8 are mentioned again at the end. And we read at the crucifixion, the women who had come from Galilee, who had been with him in Galilee, they came to Jerusalem on his last trip. They stood by the cross, and Sunday morning they came to the tomb, and they met the risen Lord. He appeared to them first. And to them, he said, go and tell my disciples that I've risen from the dead. The forgotten women of Galilee, but not forgotten by God. Not by God. Okay, a third story. I've called this one, follow the money. <laughs> follow the money. It's from Luke 21, 1 to 4. You know, that expression originated during the Watergate scandal. Follow the money. What you do with your money reveals a lot about you. It still does. And in religion, in religion, follow the money. You'll find out what's really going on behind the scenes. You follow the money. The money. Now, when people tell this story of the widow... Know this widow who's in the temple, comes to the treasury, and she has an offering to bring, but it's so small, she's embarrassed, she's ashamed, and she waits till nobody is looking, and she just sidles up and just slips slips in her offering and goes away. A widow. As we tell this story, Usually the emphasis is on how small her gift was. Well, in monetary terms, it was really small. In the Greek, two lepta. The leptos was the smallest unit of Greek money. Worth today about, listen, about one-eighth of one cent. <laughs> what can you buy even with one cent today? What can you buy with it? One-eighth of one cent. It was incredibly small. She had two of these little coins, which would amount to about one quarter of a cent. No wonder she tried to drop in the coin secretly, hoping that no one would notice her. If you went to church, and when the offering was passed, all you had in your pocket was two cents, would you just send the plate along too embarrassed to put in two cents. What people think of me? Two cents. Especially when the other people around her are putting in their big offerings. But hear what Jesus says. This woman's offering isn't small. It is huge. Huge. Why? The fat cats gave a lot of money, but when they gave... They had plenty more left where that came from. After the widow dropped in her two lepta, 
She had nothing. She was broke. Think about that woman for a moment with me, friends. What about her offering? She's got what? Two little coins, two lepta. Wouldn't the prudent thing to be to put in one coin and she still has one left? Not much, but she has, she's not broke. This woman puts in both. She is extravagant. She is reckless. Just like God. Just like God. Friends, what do we do with our money? Recently, a few weeks ago, our daughter was visiting from Chicago and she drove us up, up uh, north, um, up past um, Santa Barbara, up the central coast of San Simeon. We went up to the castle built by William Randolph Hearst. Did you ever go there? Took a, gu a guided tour. It's amazing, an interesting place. You sit on a vast sprawling acreage with a Pacific coastline stretching below. It boggles the mind. Hearst lived there for 28 years, and so long as he stayed there, he kept adding, adding, adding. Eventually, 165 rooms. Now, there's a bit of vacuuming for you. Um, 90,000 square feet of floor space. Private airport, private zoo, massive art collection, which he brought from Europe. Hearst was a media baron in those days, which meant newspapers and magazines. Every day, every day, some 20 million Americans opened one of the Hearst papers. He wielded immense power. He could make or break someone through his media empire. He became the most hated man in America. In 1941, Orson Welles produced the classic Citizen Kane. It's a thinly veiled slam of William Randolph Hearst. Fabulously rich, follow the money, William Hurst, Jesus of Nazareth, when he died, he left only one item of value. It was his keton, which was the long uh, undergarment, was woven seamless in one piece. That's all he left. Religion in Jesus' day was big money. If you belonged to the family of the high priest, big money. The spade has uncovered the residences of Caiaphas and the other priests. And listen, they lived in luxury. They had marble floors and frescoes. They lived in palaces. And they made their money from religion, from the temple. Three times a year, every male was required to leave home and head for Jerusalem. There you were supposed to offer a lamb or a goat as a sacrifice. Here's the catch. You had to buy the animal in the temple, in the temple courts. A business was set up so you could buy your animal there at a price, of course, set by the establishment, the priests. And that wasn't all. 
The temple didn't accept the usual coin of the realm, Roman money, the denarii. You had to change your money into temple money, shekels. That's the only money they would accept. Remember the story? The money changes sitting there, clink, 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 as people change their money. Follow the money. Okay. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Okay. Religion used to line the pockets of the ruling priestly class. Okay. Coming and going. Price of the animal and then money changing. Jesus came on the scene and he was disgusted. He was mad and he let fly. He overturned the tables. He overturned the whole temple set up. He overturned my life. He'll overturn your life if you permit him. I did not grow up Adventist. In fact, you'd say I didn't grow up Christian. I hardly knew what the inside of a church looked like growing up. My dad, who was from Sweden, a Swedish sailor, sailed the world, settled down in Australia. He, after some years after they were married, became an Adventist. My mother was a staunch Anglican, Episcopalian, we'd say here, but she never did. And that's another story. But my dad, who, when he came to Australia, I'm told the only English he knew was swear words. He was a sailor, okay? He grew up to become a, a very godly person. Truly, truly converted after he came to know Jesus. He used to start every day by reading the Bible. That's my first memory of him and my last memory. Before everyone else is up, the house is dark, he's up early reading the Bible, which would be followed by a cold shower, which woke everyone up. <laughs> that was noisy. When I was 10 or 11, remember, not going to church, he encouraged me to start reading the Bible. That was the best gift he ever gave me. He worked hard, never accumulated much in the way of money, but he left me the best of legacies, a love for the Bible. And in that Bible, I found Jesus of Nazareth, who turned my life upside down. This Jesus has given me a long and happy life. It's a life overflowing with good things, a life that just keeps getting better. And that's why Jesus is so special to me. He gave me this wonderful, wonderful partner here. We are in the golden years. 54 years, not out. <laughs> and I can only say, for us, they're golden years. I know for a lot of people, the last years are terrible years. For us, they're wonderful years. 
sort of the icing on a wonderful, wonderful life. So wonderful is Jesus, so incredible, so loving. And you ask me, how can I have this incredible life? Two words, John 1.12. As many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. My dear friends, receive him. Receive him. You don't have to do anything. Just receive him. Let him come. Let him be Lord and Savior. Open your heart to him. Invite him to take over your life. He will turn your life upside down. And I promise you'll never, never regret it. Let's pray. Dear Father, oh, we want to thank you for Jesus. What an incredible, incredible person. Thank you for his courage. Thank you for his clarity of discernment. Thank you for his passion for justice. Thank you for his burning zeal for true religion. Oh, Lord, make us genuine followers of Jesus. And today, we just want to open our hearts to receive him. And thank you for hearing us. In his name, we ask it. Amen.